What I'd like to talk about today is really a crucial question and so very important. Now, I don't think the world considers it very often, people in the world in general, but uh, we are here because we want to learn about God and we want to know what's what. And, and I guess the basic question is, we know that we're here on this earth. A lot of people wonder why or how we got here or what it all means. In God's word, he teaches us why we're here, how we got here, and what it all means. And furthermore, he talks about what happens after this life. Now, listening to all these prayer requests that we had today and the conditions that people have, we know that this physical life is only temporary. We're only gonna be around here for a, while, for a certain period of time. We don't live this physical human life forever. I mean, that's just reality. What happens after that? Now, there's a lot of people today who think, well, nothing. You're dead, you're as dead as a doornail, and that's it, forever. But there are others who think that after this life, there's something else in store for us. We go someplace else, or there's another type of existence. And certainly, God teaches that in his word. And we rely on God for this information because he's the one, we believe, who created us, who made this world. Jesus Christ, his son, came down here to teach us a little bit more about what this is all about. And this is where we put our faith and trust. Philosophers have come up with all sorts of screwy ideas about what is life and what is consciousness. And I mean, I've taken courses in philosophy and I found them quite boring and confusing and kind of leading to nowhere because philosophy is basically, basically trying to explain life and existence without God in the picture. I feel much more comfortable having God in the picture because I think he's got all the answers. <laughs> That's my personal opinion and I think some of you feel the same way. We've heard about heaven. We've heard about a wonderful place that exists somewhere outside of this physical realm and this physical earth. And we have read that God has a place there prepared for his people to live there eternally with him. Now the question is, how do we get there? If, if we've heard of that and we believe it, the question should be, fine, I'm all for that. How do I get there, okay? And I wanna look here in Romans chapter three because this is what Paul is talking about. In order to get there, we have to become right with God. We have to get to a certain place because we know that we're sinners and we've done a lot of wrong things in our life. We've got to get right with God. We've got to become what the Bible calls justified in his sight or righteous in his sight. And I don't know about you, but you know, I was raised in a religious background. I was raised in the Catholic Church by my parents through my teenage years. And I struggled a lot trying to get right with God or trying to do the right thing. And I, so often I failed and came up short. And then after kind of transitioning from the Catholic Church to another church, which tended to be kind of very legalistic, uh, again I struggled because there were a lot of rules and regulations and uh, so many times I felt that I came short on what I should be doing and being the kind of person that I should be. So I was frustrated. And over the years, I had doubts in my mind as to whether I was ever going to make it to a place like heaven or if I was ever going to become acceptable to God. 
in, in the way that he wanted me to be. Uh, let me start reading here in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul says this, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, in God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So that, that's a shocking statement there, because for so many years in my life, my early life, I thought that I become righteous by keeping the law. <laughs> that I become right in God's sight by being the best person that I could possibly be. Doing everything right, you know, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, and so on. But Paul goes on to explain something different in verse 21. He says, but now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. Yeah, it's mentioned in the Old Testament. The prophets talked about this. He says in verse 22, that this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. So it doesn't make any difference if you're male or female, uh, back in these days, Jew or Gentile, uh, no matter your nationality, your ethnicity, uh, God accepts all on these terms. A righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right with God, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God, the Father, presented him, Jesus Christ, his son, as a sacrifice of atonement on the cross. That's why we have this cross back here to remind us what it's all about. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So what God says is to be right in God's sight, to be acceptable to God, to eventually make it to heaven, to an eternal reward, this is what we have to do. You're not going to pull up your, yourself by your own bootstraps and just be the best person that you can possibly be. That isn't what gets you saved and right with God. Because the bottom line is you're a sinner and you fail every day at doing that, okay? You're not saved by the law, you are saved by grace. The only kind of righteousness that we can have that is acceptable to God is by looking to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, the fact that his death paid the penalty for all of our sins, okay? And his righteousness, we know that Jesus kept the law perfectly. He never sinned once in his life. He's compared to, in the Bible, a lamb without blemish. So what we need to do, if we want to be acceptable to God, is look to Jesus' death on the cross to ask him to be our personal savior. And his death pays the penalty that we owe for all of the sins we've ever committed in our life, past, present, and future. That is the only way 
that we can get an eternal reward, that we can be acceptable to God, that we can be made right with God. Try as we may, trying to be the best person we possibly can, like I said, on our own efforts, we fail every day and we come up short and that is not acceptable to God, okay? So what we do as Christians and as the church is we try to spread this news. It's good news, it's called the gospel, okay? And it's really good news because the message is what Jesus did for us, what the Son of God did for us through his death and he is ready to apply his righteousness to us. He credits, credits his righteousness to our account. Try as hard as we can throughout our life, we cannot somehow make ourselves good enough to be acceptable to God. It's only by Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that we can be made acceptable to God. Let's look at verse 27. <clears throat> you see, one of the problems is if making it to heaven and if being acceptable to God was all accomplished through our own efforts, we would be very vain about it because that's human nature. We would tend to brag about how good we thought we are compared to other people. Uh, it says here, where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law, no, but on that of faith. And unfortunately, you know, we're a fallen race of people, starting all the way back with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the first sin. Every human being that has lived since then, coming down to our day today, including you and me, we're sinners, okay? And, you know, we've got problems with pride, we've got problems with vanity, we all deal with this in our own personal lives. So God knew in advance that somehow trying to make ourselves right with God was just based on our own efforts and our own works. We would become even more vain. You know, we would look down our nose at other people that we thought weren't as good as we were. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Jesus gives an example of this. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. And it's the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or the publican. And this is a, per a perfect story of human nature. And one of the reasons why God doesn't leave it all on our shoulders to somehow make ourselves good enough for him. Because all of our motives are wrong. He tells the story here to some who were confident of their own righteousness. You see, that, that's what happens when, when you work out your own salvation by your own efforts and your, your own law keeping and things like that. So to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a religious leader of his day, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up in the temple and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector guy over here. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. So here's a guy who thought he makes it to heaven by keeping the law as best he can. But 
notice what, along, what went along with it. A whole lot of vanity, self-righteousness, self-praise. That's human nature. Verse 13. But the tax collector, the other guy who came into the temple at the same time, stood at a distance. He wouldn't even come near to God's presence. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So notice the two attitudes. This guy's humble. He knows he's a sinner. He admits it. He knows he's not good enough before God. But the other guy, the Pharisee, it was all about himself. God, I'm not, I'm glad that I'm not as low as some of these other people are. You know, after all, and he recounts some of the, the good things he thinks he, he does to, to, to be, be in good stead with God. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So God likes a humble attitude in people. God likes people to know that they're sinners. He doesn't want to hear somebody bragging about all the good things that they do, all the righteous things that they do, supposedly to make themselves right with God and to make it into heaven. God can't work with a person with that kind of an attitude. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, it says elsewhere in Scripture. So it's a good thing that God didn't make salvation all about what we can do to earn it. <laughs> because human nature would make us so self-centered and prideful and vain and judgmental of other people that we thought were worse than us. So God had this all planned out in advance. Let's turn back to Romans 5. But that's just an example of the wrong way to go about it. Certainly God went about it the right way, the perfect way. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace. God caused us to hear the gospel, as you're hearing right now if you've never heard it before, and it's a message of salvation. It's a message of making yourself right with God, but you don't go about it the way that normal humans would think you go about it. It's not how uh, spiritual you are. It's not how much you, you give. Or Certainly good works are good, but we do good works as a result of our salvation. Salvation comes through grace. Salvation is a gift from God. That's why he sent his son to this earth to die on the cross to make a way for us to be reconciled to God, to be made right with God. And the only way we're right with God is by looking to the death of Jesus Christ and saying, okay, I'm a sinner, I need help, I need a savior. I need somebody to rescue me out of my predicament, to save me from my sin. And when we do that, God says, so it will be. You come under the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross pays the penalty for you. You are now made right with God. Not because of your own doing, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Okay? That's the only way to be made right with God. That is righteousness. It's not self-righteousness. It's God-righteousness that has been credited to us. In Romans 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore... 
Since we have been justified through faith, so we believe in that sacrifice, we trust in it, that's how we have faith, we have now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's important. That's something that Christians have that is hard to find in this world. Peace, peace of mind, peace in your life, because we live in a crazy world, okay? A fallen world that is filled with sin, it's filled with violence, it's filled with death, sickness, whatever it may be. And we have people daily who are searching for answers and trying to find peace. And they may find it in a bottle of alcohol or they may find it in illicit drugs or they may find it in gambling or whatever it may be. They're trying to find peace. But once you have been made right with God, there is a peace that comes upon you from God, a peace of mind, a confidence, a trust, and it's priceless. It's priceless. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So because of our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ, our trust in what he accomplished on the cross for our benefit, and we have been humbled to the point that we have realized that we need a savior. We want to have a part of that eternal life in heaven with God forever. Even though we don't deserve it because we're all sinners, God has graciously given us that gift. And we want to take advantage of it and hold on to it with all, all of our might. It also gives us a sense of joy, not just peace, but joy. Joy in this world? Are you kidding me? How is that possible? Well, when we talk about joy, it doesn't mean that we just run around every day, happy-go-lucky and, you know, devil-may-care. No, it's talking about inside of us. There is a feeling of joy because we know now for sure where we're going when this life ends. We know for sure. We have God's promise on it, okay? And that's what we believe, that's where our faith is. In other words, if you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior, have faith and trust in him, if you believe what you read in God's word, you have your ticket for heaven. It's not something that you've earned, because you can't earn it. You can't earn it by works, because nobody's good enough, because we're all sinners, and even as Christians, we stumble, from day to day and, and goof up and, and sin occasionally. Not as much as we used to before we became Christians, but I mean, we're, we're gonna be honest with ourselves on that. But you have your ticket. You have eternal life. There are scriptures where God says that you're already in heavenly places because you have your ticket. Your seat is prepared. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And I'm coming back to this earth so that you can be where I am. So you have a certainty of eternal life. And that gives us joy. It not only gives us peace in this world, but it gives us a joy. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, 
There's a passage here that talks about a Sabbath rest that Christians have. Hebrews 4 verse 1, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Now, the Sabbath was something that we read about in the Old Testament. You know, the, the Jewish people uh, and all of Israel was commanded to keep a seventh day rest. In other words, you go through your first six days of the week, and then come the seventh day of the week, everything shuts down. You worship God, you physically rest. You don't go to work, you don't get involved in normal weekly things, you physically rest, okay? Now, what was the purpose of that? Is it because our physical bodies needed a rest? Nah, you know, that could be part of it, but I don't think that was the main point. God was teaching about a spiritual reality that would happen, okay, in the future. Now, my experience was, and I know some of you share this experience, I was in a church for 20 years that literally kept a seventh-day Sabbath day. And when I, I learned about that way back when, I thought, well, that's different, but okay, let's, let's give it a try. So for 20 years, I was a part of a church that every Friday at sundown, we started a rest. You know, we'd bring our kids in from outside and say, okay, the Sabbath is starting and we're going to rest for 24 hours. No work, not going out to entertainment type things. We're going to focus on God. And you know, whenever that happened, when we'd bring the kids in and get together as a family, and I mean, it was a nice, a nice custom in, in some respects. It, I think it brought us together closer as a family, but I always wondered, is there something more to this? <laughs> you know, I would pray to God and say, okay, we're obeying, we're closing out the, the world, and we're kind of focusing on you now, and we're gonna physically rest and not get involved in a lot of worldly things. But it seems that there should be something more to this. You know, we're obeying as best we can, but, you know, God, you're going to have to reveal this to me. And, you know, as time went by, uh, our church changed a little bit, and we came to see a grace and, and more of a New Covenant approach, not looking at things through Old Testament eyes, but New Testament eyes. We came to realize that this rest that the Israelites kept for all those centuries looked forward to another kind of rest that would take place, okay? And this is what is being talked about here in Hebrews chapter 4. There remains, okay, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 2, for we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith, okay? So actually what the Old Testament Sabbath portrayed or looked forward to was the rest now that we have in Jesus Christ. Because knowing now that we don't have to somehow work out our own salvation by the law and keeping of the law and observing the law, we just look to Jesus Christ. We know that his death on the cross and when it applies to us, when we accept him as our personal savior, all of a sudden our work to make it to heaven is finished. We don't have to work that anymore because Jesus has done the work for us. 
we rest in his work, okay? We no longer have to drive ourselves crazy trying to be the best perfect Christian that we can be to be acceptable to God. Our salvation is not based on our own efforts, and it's not based on the keeping of the law. It's based on grace through Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. And he goes on to say in verse 6, it still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So enter into that rest. He encourages us. Verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience, the Israelites' example of disobedience. So it's based on God's grace. We don't have to worry or have doubts about our eternal life. It is secure in Jesus Christ. It's not because of what we've done to earn it. It's because of what Jesus Christ accomplished through his death on the cross and then credited it, it to us. Amen. So I want you to understand that God is very pleased to grant you eternal life with him in heaven. That's his goal, that everybody respond to the gospel. You know, Jesus Christ said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he was talking about on the cross, he will draw all people to him. So that's what the gospel message is all about, why Jesus had to die. He came willingly to pay the penalty that we all owed because of our sins. And the gospel goes out, it has been preached around the world, that he wants people to come to him, to acknowledge him as Savior, to look to his sacrifice on the cross, to accept him as their personal Savior, and so then to live in relationship with him for eternity. But the Bible seems to show that not all people are going to respond to that for whatever reasons. And when you look at the world today, there certainly are millions of people who have not responded to the gospel. So it's a personal choice. God doesn't force himself on anybody. He makes salvation available. He has already done all that he needs to do to make it possible for you to live in relationship with him, to be made right in his sight. And it's not because of our efforts, it's because of Jesus' efforts on our behalf. Finally, in Matthew chapter 22. This is a story that brings the reality of the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, Matthew 22, verse 1, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. So this is talking about heaven, eternal reward. The invitation goes out, but not everybody is going to respond. Okay, some people are going to refuse to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Jesus Christ is going to be the bridegroom. The church is going to be the bride. 
a fantastic celebration at the end of time. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. And you know, that's the way it is in the world today. The, the gospel message goes out and people uh, say, I don't have time for that. Or, you know what, I don't, I don't need religion. <laughs> I, I'd rather God butt out of my life or whatever their excuse may be. Verse 6, the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. And yeah, that's what happened to the prophets in the Old Testament. That's what happened to the apostles. When you read the story of the apostles and how they ended up dying, most of them were martyred for the things that they were preaching, the gospel. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Initially, it was the Jewish people. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So that's us. <laughs> we weren't the original invitees, but when the original invitees refused, we got the chance, okay? But then the king came in to see the guests. He noticed a man who was there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Now back in these days, when a wedding banquet took place, when you came to the wedding uh, reception, you were handed an outfit to wear, generally white, a celebratory type outfit. All of the guests had a, a wedding clothing to wear. So the king comes in and he noticed one guy who doesn't have the wedding clothes on. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without the wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Now we know that the wedding clothes represent the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When we accept Jesus Christ as our savior, in a sense, we're given those wedding clothes. It's, it's, you know, the Bible talks about putting on Jesus Christ, putting on the armor of God. So it's getting dressed as something we all are familiar with. So he says this righteousness, this salvation is like a white wedding outfit that God gives us. And when we get to the, the wedding banquet, the celebratory time after Jesus' return, and we're all celebrating eternal life and salvation, the only reason we're there is because Jesus Christ granted us through his righteousness and his sacrifice on the cross the proper wedding garment to wear. And if you are there and you didn't get there in the right way, and obviously this fellow tried to get there by his own efforts, <laughs> by being the best Christian he could be or keeping the law like the Pharisees did in a way that he bragged about and judged others who were less than he was, he says to the guy, friend, how did you get in here without the right wedding clothes? Obviously, you tried to be here without accepting Jesus as your savior, without looking to him and him alone to have his righteousness, not your own righteousness, but his righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is the only righteousness that's gonna get you in here. And the guy was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, take him hand and foot and throw him outside. That's pretty rough. But that's the way it's going to be. The only way you're going to have eternal life and the only way you're ever going to get to heaven is by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. And his righteousness will be credited to you. That's the only way. 
tie him hand and foot and throw him into the outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So, it's, yeah, it's rough. But God sets the rules. He sets the parameters. He's the one who created us. And he has known the purpose for which we've been created for all eternity. <laughs> and you know what? The reason he gave the law back in the Old Testament is to show us that it's impossible to keep it well enough. It's impossible. So the scripture says that the purpose of the law was to lead us to Jesus Christ. Because after you try to keep the law and you know you're not doing it properly and you have you know, setbacks and frustrations and you get angry about it, that's why God provided a savior for us. His purpose all along was to send Jesus Christ, his son, to be our savior. And first, he had to prove to us that we couldn't do it on our own. None of us. We're all sinners and have all fall short, fallen short of the glory of God. So what a purpose and what a plan. But that's why we're here. That's why God created this earth. That's why he created the human race. Because his goal is to have us live with him and enjoy him for all eternity. But it's our choice. He has provided the means. If we want to comply, we'll be there. We will be there, guaranteed. But uh, the Bible seems to show that there are going to be people who are, there are going to be people who will have nothing to do with it. Like I said, who first don't even believe in God. They've convinced themselves that God doesn't exist, or they don't think they need God, or they think they're good enough on their own because they always compare themselves to people who are worse than themselves. And if that's your attitude, chances are you're not going to respond. What God wants is a humble heart. He wants a person who realizes that they're sinners and that they need help, that they want to be with God for all eternity. And God spells out exactly the roadmap to follow, and it's through Jesus. So our God is very gracious. He doesn't force his grace on anybody, but he has done everything he can possibly do for us to know him, to appreciate him, certainly to worship him, because when you understand all he's done for us, he is worthy of worship. And he wants us to be with him for all eternity. And now you know how. <laughs> Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. And we have come here to worship you today because of your awesomeness, your grace, your love. Scripture says you are love. It doesn't just say that you're loving, but you are love. And you certainly are. And our goal is to be with you for all eternity. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to this earth to pay the penalty that we all owed because of our sins. And we all are sinners. And we continue to struggle with sin, even though we've become Christians. We know it's a daily battle trying to do the right thing. But Father, we know that we're saved by grace through your son Jesus Christ. And that's something that we're going to worship you for for all eternity. So please make that real in all of our minds and hearts and draw us closer to you every day. So thank you, Father, for being our God, and thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our Savior. We worship you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.